This is Keywords and I'm Zoe Cummins. Tonight, we have four self-recorded pieces for you, all prompted by the keyword threads. Over the next half hour, you'll hear the work of Tess Davidson, Adrian Crowley, Amanda Bell and Colin Moshe. What's been so interesting about this series so far are the different ways in which writers and producers have responded to a prompt. Each of our writers this evening interpreted threads in a different way. Threads of thoughts, memories, obscured, tucked under, interwoven, kinked and twisted yarns. For others, threads are about the connection through and across the generations. In our first piece, radio producer Tess Davidson and her mother Fiona share their memories of Aunt Kathleen's cottage and how their annual visit was a quiet expression of love and connection. I'm looking up towards the house. Now the trees, since the years have gone by, have got more overgrown. I'm standing at the bottom of a wide country lane, a warm breeze around my ankles. Trees line the road and rustle overhead. I can just make out the red door, open as always. Every August, we visited my great-aunt Kathleen. Driving along the gravel-lined roads of Irish countryside, fields and golden hay bales blurring into smears of colour. I remember she would shake our hands. She wasn't one for hugs. Her grip was vice-like as her small, clammy fingers scrambled for escape. And yet her hands were also vulnerable. Her veins were soft blue wrapped in crumpled tissue paper skin. I remember how the blue matched the edges of the apron that pinned to her sturdy frame. Well, she always had a, a towering presence. She was tall. She was strong. She had um, tight-knit, curly, neat hair because she would get it done every week and um, wore a blue and white checked overall always because she was either in doing the house chores or outside with her animals. Despite that sort of large persona and towering presence, very comforting. I could sit in her company for hours. And if you stand at her door and look out in front of you, behind the bush, the overgrown pivot hedge type bush across the road, where she used to lay out her tea towels to dry them in the sun, there's fields, there's mist and greenery everywhere and just, just the clean, earthy smell of the countryside. And in that little patch, you could be back years ago to when she first opened the door to me. You could always smell the scones from the doorstep, golden from the heat of the griddle. Is she like to serve them with homemade jam for anyone who stopped by? Well, anybody calling to the house, the first thing she would do would say, take a cup of tea. She lived in a small cottage and the door was literally always open, day and night. And anybody who was anybody would call in to see her. And it was the hub of the community. If you drove by... And the cars were there, you knew not to call until there was less people there. And equally so, if you drove past and the door was closed, which was a rarity, you knew she wasn't in. And particularly one occasion when we called in and she wasn't there and we drove off, we met her coming along the road and she said, where were you? We said, when we called with you, but you weren't in, she said, well, I'll be in now. So turn around and come back. <laughs> so she was very, she was hilarious. Because she, she didn't intend to be, but she just said it like it was. 
When you were a small child, the idea of spending a warm Sunday afternoon visiting elderly relatives who only ask questions about school is less than ideal. We much preferred when we were let loose, finally, into the surrounding fields where we ran like wild things and could befriend doe-eyed cows. When you're eight, it's hard to understand how such family visits could communicate the subtleties of quiet adult grief. My granddad died tragically and suddenly when he was 29. My great-aunt Kathleen was a way to connect to his former world. She kept my granddad alive for my mum, threading together the various strands of the family into one sprawling ecosystem. In her situation in the countryside, that's what you did. Family was family and you didn't really, unless years ago, you know, you were obliged to move away through lack of employment and that. You rarely moved away from the initial birthplace my aunt and her brothers and sisters that lived near her all lived just down the road from where they lived when they were younger. I always felt in my case, because she was sister of my late father, that, I, that she was the one constant I could go down to to remind me that he'd existed, to remind me how important he was to her as well as to me. In that time, she and her home felt rooted firmly in the lush green landscape that surrounded her, as though brick, mortar and flesh had risen up together from the earth. She passed away in 2009, but the cottage still remains, the door freshly painted red. I never feel more part of that tapestry than when I'm down in their company. Less company as I was, but now still as ever important as ever to be part of that jigsaw or tapestry that has been my mainstay. If our last piece was about what binds us through our families, our next, written by Colm O'Shea, is about the load carried by our bodies, the filaments of muscle and hair, the cells and sinew that hold us together for as long as they can hold us together. Each life hangs by a thread. We think we are resilient, but that fragility remains. The endurance, the longevity of any one thread depends on the load put upon it. I remember an experiment in college undertaken by all engineering undergraduates. Tensile loads are applied to a specimen, usually steel. Increasing the load and measuring the deformation of the specimen gives a graph of stress versus strain, demonstrating the elastic stage where a reduction of the load will return the specimen to its original dimensions. The yield point, beyond which the specimen cannot return to its original state and continuing to the fracture point the specimen, unable to bear the load, breaks. Pulling at the thread of a life can be like pulling at a thread in a piece of clothing. Like the coat she buys years ago. An expensive coat. Something she would never normally buy. But this is a good coat. This is a coat to be looked after. This is a coat for life. Before buying it, she sends me pictures of different options. I'm happy to help, even if, to be honest... I serve no practical function beyond that of a sounding board. But, like the coat, her thread is strong. Whatever load is put upon it is well within the capability of her life to rebound with no lasting impact. Take her berets, different colours stored in a box in the bottom of her wardrobe, waiting to leave her flat while she decides which one to wear, doing this as much to tease me as anything else. I always think she looks so pretty in a beret, and she knows it. 
With her final choice, she sets it on her head, smiles and kisses me before we leave. Collected over years, the berets represent different stages of the thread of her life, but everything remains strong. However, somewhere, somewhere buried deep in a cell, there is a switch. What about her red dress, the one with the lace sleeves? The red dress I see on the cover of a magazine, worn by someone who looks a little like her, at first glance could almost be her. I send her a picture. Her thread remains strong, yet. Yet, deep in that cell, the switch could have already been thrown. The switch that normally tells a cell its time has come. But the switch now thrown tells the cell to continue living, growing, to replicate and begin spreading through the body. Consider the cream-coloured summer dress with the red and blue flowers. The dress she wears on our last night together in the cottage we rent for the weekend. The dress she wears because it's a slightly looser fit. She's been feeling a little unwell, a little bloated. But she's been to the doctor and is taking her medication. She feels comfortable in the dress and she looks beautiful. And the sun is shining and we sit outside the cottage in the late summer evening before going to bed. But the thread is being stretched. The load is increasing. The cells that should have died have continued to grow and to spread and the thread is starting to fray. Everyone has been looking in the wrong place. The medication will not help because the medication is targeting a problem that isn't there. The real problem is somewhere else. If she knew, if we knew, if they knew, maybe, maybe there might have been a chance, but maybe the load on the thread was already too much. Consider that final dress, that hospital gown. Consider a life stretched to breaking. Consider seeing her in the hospital and only recognising her when she raises a hand to wave hello. Consider how quickly it has all overtaken her. Consider how drawn she looks, how much weight she has lost so quickly. Consider you've arrived to collect some laundry, which you're reeling. Consider it's barely a fortnight since your night in the cottage, sitting in the late summer evening and she's looking so pretty in that cream-coloured dress with the red and blue flowers. Consider they've only just discovered it's cancer. Consider tomorrow she'll be moved to intensive care. Consider a few days from now she'll be dead. Consider she's dying right in front of you, but because she has the strength to come looking for her laundry, you think she might still have a chance. Each life hangs by a thread, but each thread can only bear so much. We can feel connected to previous generations even if we've never met them. Thread-thin whispers from the past that find us here in the present through music, history or stories. And sometimes we just need to feel close enough to others to step into their shoes. In our next piece we leave Ireland for the banks of the Avon River with writer, musician and sound designer Adrian Crowley. Adrian weaves a walk down the riverbank with the story of a preacher who used to live in the house where he's staying. I'm standing in the bay window of the sitting room, same place I stood yesterday while watching the plump wood pigeon eating berries from a wavering branch. J and M's house is built on a hill and it's a satisfying vantage point here on the carpet flanked by glass. I've been their house guest for some days now, 
There's a weathered bird bath down there on the grass, made of stone, shaped like a clam. At least I assume it's a bird bath. No birds are bathing there right now. It's carved from limestone, maybe, I'm not sure, but I'd wager it's limestone. And there's another stony shape off to the side, a fragment of some kind of architrave or cornice, partly covered by ferns. There's a break in the clouds, and a frayed patch of blue appears above, giving way to November sunlight. The light is low and slanting, and seems in a way like an invitation. I hear a chain clink in the hallway, followed by a patter of paws. M appears in the doorway, wearing a raincoat, holding a dog leash, a chain dog leash. Let's take a stroll, she says. J is behind her, putting on his snood. I take my coat from the hook, and the four of us go outside, me, J, M, and their rescue dog, Hester. As we walk down the steps from the porch, M points to a carved stone shape resting against the side of the house. It's slightly obscured by a shrub. Have you seen that? Yes, it looks like a gargoyle that has fallen off a church. As we walk down the shady driveway and out onto the sloping street, I'm told that's precisely what it is. M tells the story of the original resident of the house, an evangelical preacher who once built his own church that was then all but consumed in a fire. He retrieved some of the stone features and ornate masonry from the smoking ruins and deposited them there in the garden, where they have remained ever since. His family were taken by cholera, but he was spared. And then one night, he decided to take his own life. So he walked down to the banks of the Bristol Avon. But just as he was about to fling himself into the black, swirling waters, he saw God, or at least was visited upon by a divine apparition who imparted him with heavenly instruction, after which his life was never to be the same. Go forth and build your own church, I imagine was the general gist of it, and less of the morbid self-centered preoccupations. You'd do better than to be giving in to those wasteful thoughts, squandering your life breath on a lacrimose moment of madness. Enough of the melodramatic histrionics. What I need you to do now is to climb back up off this sloppy riverbank and pull yourself together. Build a church. It's up to you how you raise the funds, buy the land, dig the foundations, pay the stonemasons, Find the timber and all the rest of it. But 
wipe your snotty nose and go build a church. I wonder, did he have the design in mind in that very moment? Did it come with a sudden incandescent visitation, sheet lightning holding still with the outlines inside it, the blueprint, the draftsmanship, the shimmering scheme of the floor plan, the transepts and the aisle, the naves and the altar, the elevation crackling and fizzing in the electric vision, and the bell tower hovering in the flashing air above the rowan trees, the rose window and the steeple. Was it all there blazing before him, that dank night on the muddy banks of the Avon? M calls back to me from up ahead, calls my name. I have found myself standing still at the edge of the pavement, looking up at the sky. J and M have walked up the hill, and it seems Hester was the one who noticed me lagging behind, pulling back against the leash and clutching the wet ground with her sudden dead weight. She got their attention. She likes to keep the troop together, M later explains. I catch up with them and we continue up the totter-down hill. M and J are talking about starlings, murmurations, and whether or not they come out when it's raining. I try to remember if I've ever seen a murmuration under the rain. I can't. They are planning a trip to the lakes this coming Tuesday and hope to see the starlings again. The last time they were at the lakes, the starlings came at dusk and put on a heavenly show over the water before settling and roosting for the night. I walk behind them. As their voices trail ahead, I turn up the collar of my coat and pick up the threads again. The apparition on the riverbank. And by the way, you'd probably find it easier to climb back up to the street if you take the rocks out of your pocket. Toss them into the Avon. They'd serve better on the riverbed as some elver's hiding place than in your overcoat as would-be ballast. Now, go and build a church. And as he dragged himself back up to the road, did he look down to the liminal place, his footprints filling slowly with the Avon's juices? And does an apparition cast a shadow like worldly light casts a shadow? And as he walked in euphoria over the bridge, did he look back or just keep on going? Was he singing as he went? Was the song he sang a demented kind of song? I wish I could hear the lyrics now. Did the plans of his church sear in his mind? And did the apparition linger on back where he left it? Did it linger 
hanging above the river bend and the dark Avon riverbank. Did it drift slightly, like the phosphine afterglow in your eyes might drift after staring at a flame in the dark? Did the luminous buttresses and bell tower linger against the rowan branches? Did the vision dim slowly and fade back into the rowan leaves and berries? Did it all turn dark again as the water babbled on? We come to the brow of the hill and Hester decides it's time to go home. I'm not yet ready and announce I'll keep walking for a bit longer. M says, take your time, you have a key. And if we're not sitting up when you get back, be sure to lock up. I will, I promise. Jay says, you might be lucky with the rain. Then they are gone from view, quick as that, with a wave and a turn of the heel and a whisk of the chain. The night has truly rolled in by now. I follow the fall of the land to see where it takes me. Maybe I'll go as far as the bridge and then turn back. We'll leave Adrian Crowley by the banks of the River Avon, and I know I'm intrigued to know more about his fate and that of the preacher who found his faith just when he needed it most. Poet Amanda Bell has written our final piece in this episode, guided by the theme of threads. Visible Mending responds to the exhibition she visited, The Objects of Love, by Holocaust Awareness Ireland. In it, she explores weaving, creation myths and the Nuremberg Laws, and... At the end, she proposes visible mending as a way to honour the past. Consider textiles, the warmth of a woolen jumper, the comfort of cashmere, the airtight insulation of fur. Consider how uniquely human it is to fabricate clothing and wear it. Consider then the process of removing everything that distinguishes a person as human, that deprives them of their humanity reduces them to a number. Consider the Nuremberg Laws. Consider being banned from visiting parks, restaurants and swimming pools, from owning radios, records or telephones, from riding bicycles and from keeping pets. Consider being ineligible for clothing ration cards, being forced to hand over all garments made of wool and fur. Consider how cold it gets in Central Europe and being forbidden to wear anything but woven textiles. Consider the flax fields of Poland, the vast expanses of blue-flowered plants dancing into the distance. Scythed green sheaves, the stench of retting fibres catches in my throat. The rattle of seed pods, golden streams of linseed spill into trailers. Coarse strands of flax coiled around the distaff, the clanking of looms 
Consider the city of Lodge, the country's largest centre for spinning, dyeing and weaving linen. Consider Moses Rosenfeld, who founded a flourishing textile factory there. Consider Hitler's armies crossing into Poland from Silesia and how the Rosenfelds, like so many other Jewish families, were brutally dispersed. Last family portrait. Together in the shade of towering tree trunks. Glints of sunshine on empty factory windows. The drape of cedars. Sniper's sightline. From the child's hiding place, sweet papers rustle. Receding train tracks. On outstretched palms, a gold powder compact. Red stamped papers smudged with whirling fingerprints. See how they spiral. Consider a world being repaired. Consider the Navajo spider woman weaving the universe into existence. Consider the three moire, clothos, spinning the thread of life for each person born, lachesis, measuring the length of their thread, and atropos, determining when it should be cut off. Consider visible mending, where each repair is a statement, a valuable addition, for each strengthens the original fabric. Consider each of these hard-saved mementos as a patch lovingly applied, a skillful darn in the flawed fabric of history. Thanks to all the writers who self-recorded and submitted to this episode, and thank you for listening. Keywords is available online and as a podcast. This series is supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland Sound and Vision Fund, and we'll be back next week with another keyword.